the trees. Who's there? I said, as I stood in my head. And nobody answered me. Tonight we're going to be talking about all of the adventure aspects of using different water-based vehicles, everything from uh, man-powered to submarines. But uh, before we do that, John uh, is going to give us a little rundown on some of the terms we're going to be using, because those, those guys with boats, man, they, they've got these special terms. So, John, go for it. So we're not going to worry about all the various terms that you know, are used about boats. We're just worry about the main ones for this uh this podcast, most of these are dimensional ones. So we have things like the ship's beam. The ship's beam is, is how wide a ship is, as wide as point. Uh, then there's the ship's draft. This is basically how deep into the water a ship rests. So you have the, between the waterline and the keel of the boat. The keel is like the backbone of the ship. Flat bomb boats don't actually have a keel. The waterline, of course, is very obvious. It's where the water comes up on the side of the ship. Other than other than that, we're not going to do a whole lot more terms. And if we do run some more terms, we'll mention them briefly, what, what, how to define them. But the main ones we're going to be talking about is the ship's beam, its uh, draft, basically what kind of keels they have. And like I said, some don't actually have keels. That's pretty much it, other than the actual dimensions and size. What about displacement? That's a good one. Displacement, yeah, uh, yeah. Thank, thanks, Blix. Yeah, displacement is how much water a ship displaces. And I know some of you that's a circular, circular description, but a ship's displacement is usually measured in pounds or tons. So you, you basically, you know, when you put a boat in water, how much water to support that boat and keep it floating is pretty much what it breaks down to. So you know, that's that's displacement. And for a lot of the boats we're talking about. If you hit the tons, you're, we're, we're getting to the big boats for, for, for this discussion. Because I don't see you guys bringing in a luxury yacht on the French Pass. Mainly because most luxury yachts are taller than the rings are. <laughs> you have to go through. Well, there's one other term that I'd like to bring in, and that is plane. And what that is, is that whenever you have a boat, because as John uh, was mentioning that uh, it sits in the water, and water is very hard to move through because you have to push heavy water out of the way when you're moving along. So almost all boats, what they they really want them to do is when they're moving along, they want them to rise up out of the water. Now, sometimes they do this, usually they do this by the shape of the boat, and sometimes they can do it even with some really exotic things like hydrofoils. But the idea is to bring the boat up somewhat for two reasons. One is is it so that less of the boat is actually under the water, and therefore it's, it's displacing less water so we can move faster. It takes less energy to move. But the second reason, which is very important to people who are not regular sea, seamen, is the fact is that the boat, therefore, will move Hopefully, from crest to crest of the waves, it'll move, it'll move uh, more evenly. And so the ride becomes smoother and much more enjoyable. So 
when you read and about boats uh, being able to easily achieve a plane, they're referring to the fact that they can rise up out of the water and they can fly along the water, the waves, or even um, uh, the, the river or whatever it might be in a smooth, even fashion and not be affected so much by the size of the swells or anything like that that's underneath it. So that's, that's an important thing about boats. And when you read about it, that's important. But we're not going to see that in a, in a book or anything like that about it. But when we talk about why we choose some of the, of the boats, one of the reasons that some things work in some areas and not others is because of the choppiness of the water and how well the boat actually can deal with that kind of a situation. Yeah, basically, you, it's different between a boat plowing through water versus skimming over water. Right, exactly, John. We want to skim over the water except for the part of the boat that sticks in the water to help turn the boat and control its path, which is what we usually refer to as the keel. And that really boils down to how rough your water is. If you're talking about sea vessels, you want keel because the water's trying to push you around and you want that is your resistance to being shoved around. That is one of the solutions, yes. But in lakes and rivers, you don't want that because they're generally not as deep or you can hit shallow areas very easy and you're not being pushed around by waves so much of that. You want more plain. It's the most important thing about a keel is the fact that it allows you to travel against the wind uh, or across the wind and not be blown around by it. And that's why um, sailboats and things like that have deep keels. But as, as Blick said, is that you take a deep keel into a shallow harbor, you're not going to go very far. So, some sailboat keels are mainly uh, a permanent centerboard or daggerboard on that ship. So it actually has a flat bottom, so it doesn't actually have much draft, but it has a blade sticking into the water for the purpose of stability. And when we start talking about some of the uh, other ones like the trimorans and the catamarans, is is they also sometimes can be fitted with uh, what are called dagger boards, which are thin pieces of wood which stick down in, uh, or not really wood, it's usually some kind of high-tech composite fiber, but they stick down into the water for the same purpose of basically keeping it from moving side to side in the water, keeping it moving in the direction that you want it to go. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We should really first talk about why... When you're a fringeworthy traveler, why you would need a boat? What was, what's the purpose of the boat? Why does it, what does it give you? Because equipment in fringeworthy is all about making you able to do things that you couldn't normally do, that, that you as a naked person running around needs to have for a particular reason. If you're exploring and you're, you know, you come out of the portal and you're anywhere near water and you're not anywhere near, say, a civilization that's, you know, readily available, uh, a boat is a is a perfect device for a finding a civilization and b staying safe while you find that civilization. Most civilizations are based around water. That's just a, a tried and true fact. So if you came out of a portal and you could see water nearby, or um, you know you did a little bit of a scouting mission and turns up well there's a lake or a river or a shore nearby, a boat would be a perfect tool to go and find civilizations for the two reasons. For one, you know a civilization is going to be near water. And two, you can have safe passage until you find it. Because traveling over land is dangerous. You know, you, if you're traveling through a forest, you can't see enemies nearby very readily until they're almost upon you. It's very easy for an ambush situation. But even you know when I say enemies, it sounds you know that that naturally triggers people. 
but there's also animals. Uh, out on the water, you don't have that if you're in a boat. So you have safe passage there. And plus you can see further over the water. So you could, you could go out, you know, a couple miles and travel along the water. And even if a primitive culture were to see you, they wouldn't even know what you are. They might see some blip on the horizon, but you could safely look at them and take a survey of what you're about to run into and then address it accordingly so that you wouldn't, you know, you might say, all right, well, we found that we've come to this land and it's a primitive land. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to, we might go back to IDET and get proper clothing so that we can integrate into the society properly. Or maybe you've brought it with you and you say, well, okay, let's change into our primitive clothing so that we can, you know, meet the society without spooking them. Plus you can cover a lot of distance in a boat that you can't cover on land so readily. So right, because because a lot of times you're in a you refer to this this being a primitive society, which means that they may not have roads. Uh, they may have virgin forests that are filled with trees and bushes between the trees where you're going to be hacking all day long to move your vehicles, your regular wheeled vehicles, maybe even a hundred feet might take an all day thing. Clearing a road can be a major undertaking in, for an expedition. But if you have a waterway close by, then that's a natural road for you. That's, that's correct. And as a matter of fact, that's why when explorers came over to, uh, came over to the Americas in the early days, everything was, every bit of real exploration was done on the water because there were no roads. There was, you know, that was the, really the way to do it, to see, to see America and discover it. Uh, Lewis and Clark is a prime example. You know, they, they, they didn't take horse and carriage. They got a boat. Oh, yeah. I mean, they basically got, Almost all the way to the Oregon coast by boat from, you know, from the Mississippi River and following its tributaries and its very sources. So yeah, they did have to do some portage here and there, but yeah, they pretty much almost got entirely by water. We also may want to talk about when do you really need to worry about a boat? I mean, do, should you have a boat with you all at all times? My answer to that one is yeah, but you know, were talking like a raft or some sort of folding boat boat that you can put in your trailer and not worry about it. Right. Those are emergency or impromptu type things. Right. A, a real big boat, you know, like a cabin cruiser or a, a cargo vessel, something like that. Those are things that you're going to have to go back to IDET and get, uh, or maybe one of the uh, more likely one of the uh, friendly worlds, one of the alien the alien alliance type worlds of, of the new Commonwealth that IDET's creating. A cargo boat, you're not going to get through the portals. <laughs> well, you can. It just depends on what you're trying to do and where it's going to go. Well, Bruce, like you were saying about the middle campaign, now that you're running a middle campaign with your players, that's a perfect opportunity to introduce the fact that, you know, when they go on a mission, IDET might say, all right, you're going on this mission and you're going to take boats because you're going to need them for this world. And even if that world hasn't been contacted yet, it could be that... You know, there's already been explorers there, and you already know you're going to be going into a world where uh, the portal is near a, a water base, and you're going to have to travel several hundred miles to get to the, you know, your first primary contact or where the mission is, and you're going to want to do it over water. So, uh, middle campaign, like you were saying, it's just that's a really good place to introduce something like a boat, because I'm seeing that other than your 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 packed up boats, you know, your folding boats or your, your boats that are very, very easy to travel with you. I see water vessels as being either a second visit 
or something that you would find in the middle or later campaigns on a regular basis? Well, that may be true, but uh, in order to determine where a boat is going to be effective or not, you need to basically decide how is a boat going to serve you. What, What are the roles that the boats take part in the adventure? Obviously, crossing water is right. is a good is a good reason, and we're talking, of course, about a lot of water. Blix, in one of the earlier podcasts, you were talking about some of the more exotic type worlds, and one of the worlds you mentioned was a hollow earth, which was Pellucidar, one of the stories by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And in that story, one of the things that they mentioned was the fact that nobody in the story knew how to swim, and the reason they didn't know how to swim was because the water was filled with terrible, monstrous creatures. There were all kinds of dinosaurs that were aquatic who were perfectly willing to eat people who went in them. They were nice, tasty treats. Okay, uh, In our own worlds, there's piranha, there's alligators, there's all kinds of things that make it very unhealthy to cross large expanses of water because they're looking for something to devour. So a boat is very good for crossing water safely. You know, and a lot of vehicles are not going to be well prepared to cross water. I was just watching the other day uh, uh, these guys that were using snowmobiles to cross water, but that was a very specialized snowmobile. It's real fun too. Yeah, but they had to be very carefully balanced. So it's not really something that that normally happens. You usually have to have a vehicle that is very well designed for aquatic. Uh, type things. And you can get a, a car that could go into water. They've got some amphibious cars and you can put a flotation package onto a regular uh, vehicle and, and float it across and, and things like that. But you're, you're basically a- avoiding the whole issue, which is the fact that you're trying to treat a car like a boat. And it's better to simply get a boat that does the job that you want it to do. So crossing water can be small boats. It can be muscle-powered. You can use uh, uh, gas-electric motors. You can even use sail to cross small areas of water. Uh, but that's one of the main things that you use a boat for. And sometimes there's nothing better than a boat. Another reason th- uh, to have a boat is to carry cargo. It's hard to carry cargo in uh, regular cars. I mean, you they're all full of your exploration gear. And if you're trying to bring large supplies of food or medicines or building supplies and things like that, dragging that across uneven ground uh, through areas that don't have roads and stuff like that is very, very difficult. I mean, they, they had 20 mules in the mule team in the Borax commercial for a reason. They needed that much you know, to, to move things along. You know, they, a simple uh, horse and buggy couldn't get over a lot of areas. It used to take, I think, at least eight horses or mules to pull those big Tigeronga wagons that went across the West. And they went across very, very poor areas. And if they could, if they traveled more than a mile an hour, they were doing very good. So any place that you don't have real modern roads is going to be very difficult to move cargo. But on a river, or on a bay or on an ocean, a cargo vessel can move things very easily and reliably. People can't underestimate, you know, the the value of a road. It 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 is really I mean it's beyond night and day. Traveling any distance where there is no road or an established even even if it's a trail, I mean trails were rough as it is. Modern roads are a real miracle of uh, transport and you know, it should never be taken for granted at all. You know, if you go to a world where there isn't a modern road, forget about traveling any long distance with any kind of real 
cargo. Even in a Humvee, it's going to be rough roads, and you're, if you're pulling a trailer, it's gonna, you know, you're gonna bust that trailer hitch in no time. A road is is completely invaluable. Without it, forget it. You know, you're not traveling any distance with any real cargo. And, and that's the reason why the very first things that they built in America wasn't roads. It was trains. Uh, or, uh, canals, too. The, the Erie Canal was a great example, especially England. England had, has a serious, still has in place canals over the place that were used to move coal and cargo until, up until the first steam engines came to play. Then they pretty much fell out of favor. Any society that's pre-industrial doesn't actually have sophisticated land vehicles. Canals and rivers are their main transport. It's the way they're carrying large, a large amount of cargo over great distances at minimal, well, minimal, minimal effort. Uh, especially if you're going downriver, then there's a whole lot less effort going downriver carrying lot, lots of heavy cargo than it is coming back up with light cargo. Going back to the, the reasons to have boats, uh, one of the things that a boat can provide for you, which is really helpful, is it can act as a mobile command base. There's a lot of different things you can add on to a Humvee. You can, you know, one of the things is the command center, which allows you to do all kinds of communications and, uh, you can, you know, bring vehicles along for the purposes of providing support like metal shops and, and repair centers, even a hospital centers. And you can put those in, in Humvees. They have special units to do that. However, it's usually when you have a base, you end up just taking a piece of land and you build around it and then you go out from there. But with a boat, if you have a big enough boat, your base can move with you as you go do your explorations. When you finish one section, you can move along to another section and you still have everything. You don't, in other words, you don't have to pull up stakes. You don't have to rebuild your buildings. You don't have to put things back up or bring in more water lines and bring in power lines again or cut down, clear an area of land for your base. It's always moving with you. And so that's one of the really big advantages of having a large uh, aquatic vehicle as a mobile base. Egyptians were big on uh, living inside of barges. Also, I know that they use barges as uh, places to live quite a bit on in France uh, on the Seine. So that's not uncommon to see people living in large barge-like structures. And if it's un- not uncommon to see people living there, there's no reason why you can't run your exploration out of the same thing. And, and don't forget, there's, there have been many cities that have been built around canals and boats. Tenochtitlan was the original Mexico City, was actually built in the middle of a lake. It basically was the Venice of, of the uh, New World. And, of course, there's Venice, which is all canals and traveling by boat. So you will encounter people who, you know, basically live on water, either on dry land or there's people in uh, Malaysia and Indonesia who live on the water and have kids on the water and die on the water and never set, set foot on land ever in their lifetime. And you may have to deal with those folks. That may be the predominant culture. You may be on a world where people don't like building on the land because it's dangerous. So they build on the water. So everything's on the water, and that's what you got to deal with is what's on the water. Now, Blix, you earlier in the, this podcast, you also mentioned some of the great things that boats can do for you in the sense that you can provide it can provide a basis for a covert investigation of the culture and the world before you get too close and have to commit yourself to some kind of a contact. How would you want your boat tricked out to uh, take good advantage of that? Depending on the world I'm in, if I arrive in a world and I have no idea what's going on, I'm probably going to want some kind of boat that doesn't have a power engine, or if it does, it's a it's a quiet power engine. Like maybe even 
you know, a Zodiac with a, with a low powered engine or maybe even like, you know, have it modified to be muffled. You could move along quietly. You could use spy glasses with a high magnification and you could watch the shore. And if you had to ditch the boat or even, you know, just park it, come on shore, you could, you know, fold it up or deflate it or even just, you know, just hide it under uh, like a, like a, like a ghillie sheet or something like that easily. So I wouldn't be coming out with something really big and, and very showy. But really sorry, big could help you. I mean, if you're out there, you know, let's say uh, a couple miles offshore, then you could mount some really big telescopes, especially with some special motion mounts like they, the thing that they use so that with the gyroscopes so you can see rock solid miles away. Right. So if I was going to do something like that, you know, you'd want to use one of those fold up trimarans. You could set up like a big base. You know, you could go out a good distance with the trimaran. You could have the, you know, the, the fold out um, pieces that go over the, 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 the three different flotations. You could set up your, um, your long range telescoping viewer and you could watch a society. You could even watch them for weeks on end because, you know, you could always fish and you could, you could take enough supplies with you to keep you, you know, keep you occupied and, and keep you well fed and watered while you're out there. And you're then, also far enough out that you could also launch some, uh, uh UAVs. You know, you could, uh, either true. a helicopter or maybe a small sailplane one that was designed more for stealth and it could look like a bird because it's being launched far away. Oh, look, there's a bird flew away from that boat out there and it goes up and flies over the city taking pictures and nobody thinks twice about it. And then you could take your, you know, your, your, your trimaran, you could take it back to the portal. You could fold it back up again, and then you know um, come out in your uh, you come out in your sea dues and um, and park nearby and make sure you're in the right garb and and show up and make contact. And if you make a mistake and you get in trouble, you could run back to your sea dues because you know they're small enough that you could hide them behind a set of rocks or something and jump on them and pshong and you're out of there in no you time. Could, you could put a tarp over most of them, uh, you know. Right. And they, they would look like a regular boat. It's until you say, so when you go running back there and they're chasing you and they see you running, you know, for your, your boat when everyone else is using dugout canoes and stuff and they go, Oh yeah, great. Well, you know, we will use our bow and arrow and shoot at you or we'll throw our spears before you can get anywhere nearby. And you pull that tarp off and they see that gleaming, you know, a jet boat and you jump in that thing and fire it up and you're a hundred thousand feet out in a couple of seconds. That's going to be a different story for them. <laughs> Well, how, heck, you you could get you know if you got the right colored tarp, you could literally lay it over it, and they wouldn't know the difference. They would think it was a rock, right? You know, if you got like a tan colored tarp, you know, they would think it's some rock sitting on the shore because they wouldn't know any different. We have the ability to make make tarps look exactly like rocks. It's not just uh, camouflage like it used to be. They can actually like photo you know print. Uh, a, a picture of a rock on top of a tarp, and then you lay it around it, and it really looks like a rock. And even if it had the shape, the somewhat shape of like if a modern person looked at it and said, oh, you know what? That's a tan colored tarp over a, you know, a sea dew. It's like, but if you're a primitive person, you would say, hey, look, a rock. So, yeah, they can provide all kinds of covert ability to observe a culture and, you know. Uh, and, and if it's not a really unusual boat, or even if it is an unusual boat, because, uh, you could still use it, you know, to then come in and, and make contact. Because one of the th- one of the most common new technologies and new things that people saw were people coming from strange lands in strange boats. 
So you come, uh, if you were to come over land, let's say in an RV or something like that, they might look at that and go, "What? You know, this? What is this car doing here? It looks completely different." I mean, even if they say they had cars. Okay, or something like that. And you brought, and they say, well, where'd you come from? Oh, we're like five or six miles or a hundred miles away. And they're like, well, no, no, we know what a hundred miles away is. We've gone that far. Besides, you're, you're speaking our dialect. You're saying everything in our language. So where, where are you from? Right. But if you, you know, come in with a boat, they may, they could believe that you came from a thousand miles away and uh, from a place that they've never seen before or never even heard of. So your outlandish, strange looking boat, even the, the trimorans, when they they don't have them, they'd be saying, wow, that's an amazing boat. You guys came, you know, came up with a really clever idea instead of saying, you must be from another world. Well, you know, John, you bring up a really good point there, something I, I hadn't considered when you're talking about you know, the advantage of having the, the language and the dialect. If you have the language and the dialect, they're going to say, well, wait a minute, you're speaking our language and you're speaking it with our dialect, which they probably haven't encountered too often. You know, they're going to be like, wait a minute, you come from another land, yet you speak our language as good and, and, and with the same annotations that we do. Really? So that's something that your players are going to have to like consider. You're going to have to consider the fact that, well, wait a minute, we're, we're going to be coming in and we're going to be saying we're from a faraway land, but we speak their language and we, we speak it like as if we're one of them. That's going to be one of the things you're going to have to uh, take into account. Like you might say, well, we encountered one of your travelers who came out our way some years ago, and we learned the language from him. But that's something you should address. You might actually want to get one of the locals, pick him up some five miles, ten miles down the coast, and hire him to be your interpreter, and then have him be your spokesperson. And that person now, well, he lives just ten miles down the road, and you continue to speak in English, which is a language you still know or French or German or whatever your mother tongue is, and you can hear perfectly their language when they start talking to your interpreter, and, right. uh, and you don't have to reveal the fact that you can speak just as well as they can. You're from right. another, they're expecting you not to be able to speak English well or, or speak whatever their language is. I'm sorry. And so you have somebody local who can do that for you and say, oh, yes, he was somebody who came from like 20 miles or 100 miles away who's had contact. Their people have had contact with your people, but, you know, there's ways of getting around it. A good team right. is going to be smart enough to figure that out. But, you know, but they can, at least they can explain away a boat. They can explain the way this strange nature of a boat that's never been seen before in a way they can't do that with like a car or a plane, usually especially a plane. You know, we were talking about why would you need a boat? Well, one, one reason why you would probably need a boat is if the Tamelan, in their infinite wisdom, Put the portal on an island, and that island is, well, basically out in the middle of nowhere. And to get to any place else, you're going to have to travel. That's right. you got to cross that water. And it doesn't have to be a big island. It could be, a, you know, it could be uh, an island, say, um, a Zug Island in the Detroit River. Or in the middle of the Mississippi. There's lots of islands like that. There you are, on an island. And the river's too deep to drive through. You're going to need some sort of boat to get around. We also want to talk about, you know, Blending in, so yeah. Sometimes you you may want to consider you have a high tech boat, but on the outside it looks like a you know, some old barge you found in you know in 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 the salvage yard. Well, that's what it looks like on the outside. On the inside, it's you know steel reinforced, you know carbon fiber, you know carbon fiber and laminate and all that kind of stuff. But on the outside, it looks like a wooden boat. Or even better, it could be made out of tamalum plastic. 
and yeah, and look like a wooden boat. But I don't want to. I, I I really do not want to underemphasize. I think this is really important. Is the fact that you go to a world and you may need help, and you're probably not going to be able to find anybody and train them how to drive your vehicles. Not to, not your planes, not your cars, but you're probably going to be able to find somebody who knows how to sail or at least knows how to paddle. And that person, even though you're in a high-tech boat with a turbo engine or whatever you might have, still is going to understand the basic operation of how an aquatic vehicle works and will be able to be an asset to you the way that they would not be able to be in cars and planes. And a final reason I, I thought of as far as having as a, a reason to have a boat is as an assault station. If you're if you're trying to bring the hurt to somebody, moving a tank, you know, just like all the other reasons, moving a tank through a forest, you can't see very well, you don't have a road, it's, it's you know, you're, they're going to hear you coming from far away. But in a boat, you can hide the fact that a that you're an assault vehicle. B, you can you, you can fire missile pods and mortars from a considerable distance away with a clear line of sight. And C, it's a really good for launching all other kinds of assault vehicles, like you know your uh, Zodiacs and, uh, um, and possibly other type vessels. Attack hovercraft. Well, if you if your boat's big enough, or if you've been towing them along, and yes, you can tow vehicles a lot easier with a boat than you can with a lot of others vehicles as well. So yeah, boats are really good for that sort of thing. And, and I understand that we're talking mostly about really large boats when you talk about a, an assault station, but all the other vehicles too. I mean, there's lots of boats that can have, you know, missile pods on them. Small boats can have missile pods on them and machine guns and all kinds of things that would normally be a little harder to handle and can do a, a big difference when it comes down to making an assault on somebody. I mean, yeah, look, you know, look at the hurt that the uh, World War II PT boat could put on a, a, a larger vessel. I mean, it's armed with two standard torpedoes. It has uh, it has either a, a 50, mil, 50 caliber machine gun or some actually mounted 20 millimeter cannons on them, and they could, you know, they could put the hurt on on other small vehicles, or if they need to. Sink a larger, sink a larger vehicle with their torpedoes. And look at the uh, Vietnamese, the, the the river boats were used in Vietnam. They put a major mile world of hurt on people along the river. And an attack boat's big enough to have a lot of other things on it that are helpful. They could have smoke generators on them, so that you can basically lay down a huge area of smoke, not just a little bit, not a 50 foot wide, but like a mile wide area of smoke that makes everybody else slow down, run into each other. And especially not be able to target you effectively because they can't see you very well. Meanwhile, you've got all your high-tech devices. You've got your infrared can uh, viewfinders. You've got your drones. You got whatever you need. You know, you got the you got the aerial advantage or all the things that you can mount on boats that are not easily mounted on a person, let's say, or the other boats wouldn't have available to them. If I had a choice of doing an assault with a vehicle, I would much rather use a boat than use almost anything else. Being Ida, being uh, Unita, uh, and so forth, it's quite possible you can get a hold of some very, very special vessels, like a stealth boat. What's a stealth boat, John? It's a boat that you can't see with radar, and it, and, and also usually it also uh, uses our technology to reduce its thermal signature, so you can't see with IR either. The trouble is the current one, the Sea Shadow, is a bit too wide. Its beam is sixty-eight feet, so it won't fit through a portal. But you know. It's a matter of getting, you know, if you're in the middle campaign, it's just a matter of money at that point to make one that will fit through a portal. 
and you know it's it's a it's a uh, catamaran design, so that's one one benefit right there. Uh, and they move like the wind through water because they basically are designed for speed and stealth, which is interesting. They'll do about uh, 28 knots, which is about uh, 32 miles an hour, which is pretty fast for a boat. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Now we talked about the reasons to have boats and how they serve us. Let's talk. Let's actually talk about some of the types of boats. So the first one I'd like to talk about is a long-range boat. Uh, I recommend uh, my personal recommendation is the trimaran. Uh, this is a boat that has um, a uh, two floats on either side, and it has either a float in the center or it has an actual uh, living compartment. Uh, trimarans can put all the living compartments and stuff above the floats up on the, the deck, but they can also go down in the middle parts into the water and use that as the main living area because most of the living area is going to be empty. It's therefore going to provide buoyancy. Now, we're talking about a vessel that's going to be used for exploration. Now, if you were just having a racing yacht, most of those trimarans are just sitting on floats, and that's all they're doing because all they're trying, everything's up on top, and they're just trying to zip along as fast as possible. But when you're exploring, you're going to need to carry some stuff, and you don't want it all up on top of the deck. Uh, you still want a, a motor on that boat because the wind doesn't blow all the time. Right. Nothing worse than being becalmed. But also, we're talking about sails. So, Bruce, what, would you have traditional sails in that camera or use something a bit more experimental? Well, it depends an awful lot on how well I'm trying to fit into the society. If I have to, then there's lots of really nice high-tech sails in the sense that they're made out of, you know, carbon fibers or uh, really good, you know, uh, nylons and things like that, uh, which is what they use in some of the racing yachts. But there's another alternative which is to use a fixed sail, otherwise called a wing sail. Yeah, wing sails are basically what they sound like. They're a wing that's used as a sail. Uh, they have some various advantages over regular sails. For one thing, if you're going to sail into the wind, well, most sailboats don't do that very well. They have to do something that's called tacking. As you go, at the, you go into the wind at an angle, get to a certain point where you basically keel, you know, you just turn, make a very sharp turn, all your sails go whipping back and forth, everyone dodging the booms and everything, and they start going at another angle, still going forward. With a wing sail, uh, it's just a matter of positioning the wings so you get forward thrust. So you just go straight into the wind with a wing sail where you can't do that with a regular, regular sail. So that's one advantage right there. The other thing is that, well, with a little automation, one person needs to have the boat skill and no one else. With a traditional cameraman with two sit with two or three sails and everything like that, you need a crew of like ten, twelve people to run one of those boats. Because they because you need people to uh, bring the sails in and put the sails back up and repair the sails and do all kinds of stuff with the sails and the riggings and everything else. But with a uh, a wing sail which is attached with the uh, one end into the deck and the other end sticking straight up, it just basically is all taken care of by itself. It's 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 low maintenance. And using certain kinds of automation, it's, uh, as you said, John, it can be easily handled by a single person. But the point is, is that, uh, if you're going long distances, you're going to want a sailboat. And the simple reason for that is, is that in order to bring a big enough boat to, that would use an engine, you'd have to, it'd have to be a really big boat. And it would probably not fit through the fringe pass. You know, the idea of the catamaran is the fact that it is all above the water. It doesn't have a keel. So therefore, all you have to do is have it, 
have it fit through the 25-foot wide portals. And most catamarans are are not too wide to do that. You'd have to take this, the, the, the mains mass and you'd have to lower it down, but they're built to do that because they ha- have to travel around sometimes. You can ship a catamaran, especially one that where the sides slide in, they call folding catamarans, and they can put them on regular um, trailers and take them wherever you need to. That means you can take it through the fringe pass. Uh, the second reason why you have to be really careful about this is the fact that, in the, especially in the early campaign, uh, unless you're willing to pay the Chileans to let you through, uh, take a boat uh, out of the water and, and down into the cavern where their portal is, you've got to take that boat down to Antarctic and you've got to push it all the way through that tunnel, through the ice, down to the uh, electrostatic chamber, and then put it through the portal to get it onto the French Pass. That's not easy to do. So uh, uh, something that's smaller, something that can fold, some, you know, is like a catamaran, may be the o- your only real choice for a larger boat uh, until you get enough worlds out there that you're in contact with that you can start buying them on other worlds and uh, and bringing them onto the fringe pass through some of the other worlds uh, out there uh, and possibly through some of the alien um, uh, core neighbors. Right. From my reading um, – uh, normally, you want a boat that's about 42 feet long. So uh, I don't. Uh, the catamarans may be a little shorter because they're wider, uh, but that's that's pretty much what you're going for. And like I said, the the trimarans that I was looking at when I was doing the research for this podcast, they were all within 25 feet in width. Oh yeah, I mean most of them can can fold up and be already be partially disassembled into a smaller side. The other thing is too with a racing trimaran or racing catamaran. Is that especially with a trimaran? Is that the the floats or the pontoons are usually very small because basically they don't spend much time in the water on those things because they're either got one in the water or the other one, but never usually both because they're busy turning or getting into the wind at that point, and it boats usually at an angle. But with a something you want to use, you want to use a, a trimaran that basically isn't well. Built to go seventy miles an hour in the water. <laughs> you know that the that uh, that makes the I think the trimarans are a fantastic boat for French travelers because you know you can take them apart, you can you know you can package them up, and you can travel on the seas with them. And they're they're you know you can travel on a bay, not quite a river boat, but you know they're just very super versatile. But what do you carry around with you all the time? Like, you know, just every adventure you go on, you know, let's talk about the boats that, you know, are just ultra portable, ultra handy, something that, you know, every fringe traveler should pretty much have every time, you know, like you're traveling in your Humvee and you have a boat with you and, and, you know, what kind of boat is that? So your, your emergency or, or impromptu use boats. Right, yeah, the boat, the boats that you pretty much you just you just have with you every time you go out on a trip, regardless. As much as I like kayaks, they're basically single person or two person boats, and they are, are vessels, and they are they do take some skill to use. So we're probably looking at some sort of inflatable boat, like a Zodiac. Uh, some Zodiacs come in various sizes, uh, including one big Hummer that's. Weighs two, weighs two tons, but you're not taking one of those. You're taking one that will fit in a relatively small space when, when rolled up 
and its engine uh, uh, put in the pack as well. So actually, I, ha- I have I have the perfect example of that, John. Um, I like the uh, it, it's a Zodiac, and it's the it's the Cadet series, and it's the two eighty five, and it uh it has a it, it's nine foot four in length. Uh, this is unfolded, assembled, and on the water. So it's 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 nine foot four in length. It's uh it has a a width of five foot three. It can carry four passengers. It has a payload of close to 900 pounds. Uh, it weighs 86 pounds. And the outboard motor for that is about 90 pounds. So, you know, that, that, that's the unfolded, expanded version of it. But if you fold it down, uh, minus of course the, the 90 pound motor, it in a bag it's three foot by two foot by one foot so it's something you can easily carry with you everywhere um the motor again is 90 pounds you don't have to have a motor you can use paddles and that's a that's a petrol motor you actually may even consider bringing along an electric motor that you can run off of one of your one of your various fuel cells you bring along you know and the reason why i bring this up and give these stats it's not to be technical so much. It's just that to show that you can bring a boat that is very versatile. You can take it just about anywhere because, I mean, you can take these things on the sea, too. They're fine with that. They're not the greatest thing for the sea, but you can take them on the sea. But they're super, super, super portable. If you have any kind of vehicle whatsoever, you should be able to bring a boat like that in. And uh, Zodiac are inflatable-type boats because they're made of such tough material. They're actually very, very good on rivers because you can run into a submerged rock or a snag or bounce against the wall or something like that, and these things will t- can take it and keep on going in a way that a lot of other boats you know, would have a lot of trouble. And they have almost no draft in the water, so they can skim over some of the most shallowest of water. That's what the Navy SEALs use. SEALs use Zodiacs, or in this case, the proper term, if you want to get technical, is the rigid hull inflatable boat. It's still, they fold up and roll up, and they pack into a small bag when you don't need them. Well, right. yeah, and, and the point behind that is that, let's say you come out of the portal, and you travel down river for you know a couple hundred miles, or a hundred miles, or whatever, and you come across an encampment, and they're primitive people. You can deflate and fold that boat up, set it behind a bush, completely concealed, and it's easy for you to move around. And when it's time to go, you can reinflate it with a, you know, because they come with, um, you can get them with foot pumps. Uh, you can reinflate that thing within, you know, within an hour and and head back up river. Uh, having having used a foot pump to inflate a a a, a, a four person raft before, uh, bring along your solar powered air pump. <laughs> okay, well, but the point. I, I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying that it's possible. You know, it's something that you you can do. In all reality, you're going to be bringing an outboard motor. So you know, you could you could take that 90 pound motor again. You know, wrap it up in a, in some kind of bag, like a ghillie type bag or something, and hide it behind a set of rocks. Pull that thing out, attach it on, and up the river you go. And no one knows the difference. I think Zodiacs are the perfect fringe uh, companion uh, that that should be in every Humvee. Because you are fringe where you can actually get ones that are made with the 
aramid fiber or Kevlar, because if you do meet those natives and you meet them by surprise, they have bows and arrows, so it's nice to have something that's kind of bulletproof at that point. We were talking before about the um, kayaks and, and the foldable kayaks. They do have their place, though, right, John? They actually are faster. A person with a kayak can actually maneuver and travel fairly long distances with them. I mean, uh, I live up in Seattle, and the sea kayakers travel from Seattle to uh, Vancouver to up, up up to the inside up to the inside passage sometimes going all along Vancouver Island and sea kayaks and they travel amazing distances but the one side the one downside to a kayak is that you everything you have to have has to fit into basically a box the size of maybe about six shoe boxes so all your gears got to fit into a small space basically at that point but what's the real real like amazing upside for a French traveler and a kayak, it's man-powered. You're not going to run out of energy, you know, unless you starve to death. Well, researching for the show, I saw a picture of a guy in a kayak with a wing sail attached to it. That's a good idea. Uh, well, yeah, considering, you, but you know, you figure he's going to be hitting. Uh, it has no draft. I mean, a kayak has maybe like a three-inch draft. So you're running in front. You're running in, uh, in front of the wind. Sure. And the sea kayaks. Uh, usually are longer, and some of them actually have what's called a dagger board. And we, I think we mentioned this before. A dagger board is basically a, 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 a keel that you can put down into the water and give you some extra stability. And most sea, sea kayaks have both a, a keel and a small rudder you can control with your feet to help you uh, maneuver through the water. But even then, I, I, if I would put a sail on one, I want a couple of dagger boards in that circuit just for some stability. <laughs> well, the, the point is is that you can uh, reliably travel great distances across fairly, you know, uh, as long as it's not stormy water, but fairly uh, rough water uh, safely. And you can do it on your own power, and it, sometimes it can make the difference between, you know, escaping a, a situation and getting to someplace you need to and not doing it. Uh, especially if you have uh, one of the ones that can actually fold up, because there are fold-up kayaks that you can carry in a backpack. Oh yeah, they're, they're small. They, you know, they, they they have a capacity of around 250 pounds of cargo. That's you and anything else you put in the boat. Uh, some actually don't have a top to them. They're basically a, just a narrow boat with no top, so you actually can put more stuff into those. There's also inflatable kayaks. I've looked at those as well. So you got various. Various styles out there as well, and like you said, they're man-powered. You can, as long as you've got the technique in row, wear and wear a life jacket because you're going to need one. Because it's almost guaranteed if you go any distance in a kayak, you will flip over at least once in that trip. So learning how to, you know, uh, write yourself when you do that is going to be a, a great little skill to learn. But if you get the boating skill, you probably got it already. And and the beauty of those is full of kayaks. I, I got one right here. Is uh, you know they weigh anywhere between 20 and 30 pounds, and they can transport roughly 300 pounds, and they take 10 to 15 minutes to assemble. You know, it's it's easy to stick in the trunk of a car, any car. Yeah, and there's nothing stopping you from actually carrying both, carrying both a, a Zodiac-style boat and a, some kayaks. If you have more than one vehicle, each one's got different different loadouts for different you know different reasons. We should talk about a, getting a little exotic here because, you know, we like to – to bring the awesome to this podcast. What about personal submarines? Well, see, that to me is the ultimate in the in, in the bad weather boat. 
Okay, there is no there is no bad weather that is so bad that a submarine won't work. You go under the weather, you go under the ice flow, you uh, you can't be more covert than a submarine. Yep. In fact, there's, the one, there's a world where you actually can launch a submarine underwater. That's the Atlantis base on Victorian Earth. And and it's not unreasonable. I mean, you can look online, and and we'll provide notes, and you know, in the show notes, we'll we'll provide links to these. But there are two man, three man, six man submarines. You know, it's it's these are really vessels that are out there that you can readily buy. Because these things don't have keels or anything like that, they all fit through a portal. Now, you know, one thing you got to remember, you know, they, they do take electricity. So, mo- any, any, so all submarines are by de- definition electric. So yeah, you 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 occasionally need, probably need at least put a snorkel up every so often just so you can run a little small engine of some sort to charge up your batteries. But other than that, yeah, they got good range. They have great range. Right. A lot of submarines, as you said, John, they run under the water, but they just put a snorkel up. So all you see above the water is you know uh, the uh, the sound the sound of the engine is is muffled inside the water. But submarines are great. I mean, you know, and, and of course, there's all kinds of submarines you have to contend with. I mean, you know, uh, when we say modern, you know, dealing with submarines, you have to remember submarines have been around since the Revolutionary War with the turtle, which may or may not have worked. We, you know, no one's, no one's actually ever determined if the turtle actually went out and did anything at all. But still, we've had submarines. In fact, one of the famous ones is the Hunley, which actually sank a Union ship. And then promptly got sunk afterwards. I don't remember if they actually found out what what sunk the Hunley. I think it may actually have been, it may have got swamped, and that's why it sunk. But yeah, there was th- that submarine was was man powered. They actually had six guys inside doing a crank, running a crank and running the ship. Uh, there was a Union uh, submarine called the Alligator, which also had guys rowing inside. Uh, but that one actually had oxygen scrubbers inside, so it actually was much more modern than the. Uh, than the Hunley. Hunley was basically, they had a surface to get fresh air, otherwise they'd just simply officiate from the carbon, uh, carbon dioxide. So it would be very realistic to expect the Victorian world to have some submarines, say, in their secret service. I mean, there was the, the um, actually there was a snare I was working on. One of the, uh, one of the people who actually de- developed the first modern submarine was a fellow by the name of Holland. However, he was a devout Irishman who decide who was who wanted to actually to sell his submarines to Ireland so they could go sink ships. <laughs> yeah, but I'm thinking, you know, like Victorian era, you know, where you can uh, steampunk, where you can like pump up the the technology a little bit in its own way. Oh, I mean, that's the that's that's the age of of Captain Nemo, you know, with his uh, uh, where Jules Verne actually did never did say how the sh- ship worked. We think it was batteries. But he never really came out and say how the ship works. So you can make it however you want to. Uh, actually, he did. It, it is electric. Yeah. I know it's electric, but he actually didn't say how the how he got electricity. He sort of he got it from the seawater. Yeah, yeah. It sort of skimmed over that. But anyway, that's yes, of course he did. He wasn't an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> but still, you know, you can deal with the the traditional Nautilus, or you can deal with the Nautilus that's out and about on Victorian Earth, which is which may be a Tremelin boat. One thing you may, you may notice that's lacking in our in in the various races in in the game, there's no aquatic races. You don't think that the uh, the lizard guys are aquatic? No, we're talking people who breathe water. 
Oh yeah, sure. And you're you know, right. You know, so you may come to a world where you might find something akin to Gungans. Heaven help you. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> are we are we, we referring to the guys out of uh, Star Wars? Yeah. Oh, okay. Miso no like them so much. Yeah, Miso no like them either. <laughs> but you know, but besides, that, you may run to you might run to a world where there's a where there's mermaids. Maybe there is an Atlantis under the water, and the only way to deal with them is to go down in the submarine and visit right. them. So. You know, we this comes up so often. Uh, what about fast attack vehicles that you're going to take on the French pass? Like, you know, so, so for example, you know, a team's been there before. And their members have been captured and the, the enemy's base is on the water or, or, you know, on the shore. So IDET sends a rescue team and you can take whatever you want as a rescue vehicle uh, and you choose to do the assault by water, you know, what do you, what do you think? Well, the submarine is good for getting in close with a lot of stuff that can then start launching out. But, uh, you know, the, the, uh, as far as a fast attack vehicle is concerned, you've got your jet skis, you've got mm-hmm. your uh, Zodiacs. And if you're, if you know you're going in there to actually be, um, <clears throat> you know, an attack vehicle, then you can bring a, a bigger attack boat, one that's actually made out of materials designed for, you know, attacking, like you say, like a PT boat, but smaller, small enough to fit within a French path. Those vehicles went very, very fast. You can have them with the high, uh, hydrofoils, so they rise up out of the water and literally can travel 60, 70 miles an hour, where most of the other boats would be stuck at maybe 15 to 20 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. That can make a big difference. You know, moving your boat, the higher you move your boat out of the water, the faster your boat can go. So that's, that's why people like catamarans and, and trimarans. That's also why, why they like hydrofoils. So. And really, if you, if, if, if you don't have to travel a great amount of distance, you also can bring, as I mentioned before, attack hovercraft. Cause they, they basically skid, all they do is skim over the water at that point. However, Make sure they, they, they float when they're in water, because there's a lot of sport uh, hovercrafts out there that as soon as you park them, as soon as you stop them in water, they sink. Yeah, well, these are, as you said, John, these are attack hovercraft. Yeah. So I'm sure that they keep that, that's part of their design to do that. Right, that's, that's where I was thinking, it was the attack hovercraft. That, that, I like that one a lot. There's this, uh, this one I found, it's the, uh, the, the Burnham on the sea. And it's actually a rescue hovercraft, but there's no reason why you couldn't turn it into like you know a fast attack vehicle. You know, it cover, it, it can carry uh, like six people and several thousand pounds of, of of equipment, and it's made for traveling on the water, on land. Um, it's got like a big air airboat like um, propeller on it, and the dimensions would easily fit through the uh, the French pass. Right. And you could mount guns on it, armor it up. It'd be awesome. Right. The big advantage of an attack helicopter—I mean, sorry, an attack hovercraft—is the fact that it doesn't stop at the land. It goes right up onto the land. It can bring the fight all the way to the enemy. So, which is something that most of the other vehicles, uh, like an attack boat or a Zodiac, wouldn't be able to do. Yeah. Right. The biggest thing you got to worry about with the hovercraft is their beam. How wide are they? I mean, you know, if it, basically uh, you're limited to, to well, 25 feet, so which means you, you know, 
though realistically, would it be 25 feet, Bruce, or would, or would you be talking more like 30 feet? Or not 30 feet, but 15 feet because of the way we, we, we go through the portal? No, no. I mean, a hovercraft should be fine uh, uh, because especially most of the uh, what's going to be on the outside is going to be that actual inflation area, and that will be deflated while we're bringing it through the fringe path. The one I'm talking about, though, is uh, it's only two and a half meters wide. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty neat vehicle. It's a pretty, it's pretty awesome. I'll, I'll put a link on the site, but it's, That's it's, uh, it, <laughs> well, it, it carries, uh, seating five to six people. Yeah. Hovercrafts tend to be very, rel, uh, relatively small and, uh, and if they're trying for speed, they're going to be, they're going to be narrow to, to reduce the amount of wind resistance. Uh, so, you know, cause they're just basically going to be driving forward. And, and just wide enough to provide enough support to, that they won't get flipped over or something like that. So yeah. uh, if you're using it for attack purposes, I don't see any real problem about getting them through the fringe pass. Uh, you know, I was mentioning to John uh, that you have to be careful about the trailer in that if the trailer is too big, then uh, you're going to run into trouble about how high it is, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. But for something like this, you know, I mean, if it, we know that this vehicle is going to go over the French path. We're not trying to take it uh, the trailer probably over a regular road. So therefore, the trailer can be very, very low to low to the ground, low to the ramp in this particular case, because the 50 footers are not going to be the problem. It's always going to be the problem going through the 25 footers, right. and uh, and also the, the biggest problem initially is going to be getting it down to the hot semi base portal through you know the various. Uh, the, 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 uh, articulated tunnel up to Hatsumi base, getting it to the Antarctic. Again, unless you're willing to pay the Chileans, uh, a pretty good price for allowing you to take it through. And their portal, unless they uh, collapse their, uh, uh, chamber again, their portal is going to be inside of a, an underground cavern, which means you have to get it down to that cavern too. So there's a lot of things into getting boats on large vehicles, getting them onto the fringe pass is tough from Earth. But not maybe so hard from a lot of other worlds. As we mentioned, one of the problems with boats is that they look like they're not very tall until you get them out of the water. Uh, I go to a lot of boat shows up here in Seattle, and I've seen some boats that look, you know, 12 foot, you know, maybe 15 foot tall. Hey, hey, no problem. Get out of the water. It's 25 feet tall when you include that it's designed for deep water travel. So they're this huge sometimes, and then you got to put them on their trailer, and they're even taller than that. So it's it's something you, you'll be surprised with some boats that they basically don't won't fit through the portal. <laughs> the one last caveat I would like to mention is the fact that as much as I like submarines, submarines really aren't that fast. And the reason is, is because submarines are very heavy. Uh, they are very big. Uh, a submarine has to be has to be able to displace has to be has to weigh as much as the water that it displaces otherwise it bobbed to the surface so therefore all submarines are heavy and though they round the front of them that means there's a lot of inertia involved so submarines tend not to be really really fast so you're not going to get submarines that go 25 30 knots unless of course you're talking about a really high-tech vehicle something that's more science fictiony you know some of the vehicles that they had in the latter uh seasons of sequest that could travel you know 150 miles an hour under the water you know that sort of thing uh most submarines move relatively slowly compared to 
uh, let's say, a, a catamaran. But, however, they do not travel that slow compared to most surface via, uh, vessels, especially cargo vessels. So it doesn't mean that you can't use them effectively. Just don't expect it to be a speedster. That's all I'm saying. Oh, yeah. And you're talking uh, super cat. There's a t- uh, there- the Russians developed what was called a super cavitating torpedo. Basically, it was a supersonic torpedo in water. Uh, speed of sound in water is fairly slow, but uh, they were able to develop a torpedo that would literally, like Bruce said, do a couple hundred miles an hour. And it would do so by basically creating an air bubble around itself, so it would just cut right through the water. But that takes lots of energy to do. And that's something I don't see folks you know, doing in, except in the certain anime uh, series out there. Okay, well, we hope you've seen a lot of good reasons to use boats and that when you decide to use boats, hopefully we've been able to give you some good tips on how to use them effectively and maybe give you some uh, opportunities to do some things you wouldn't normally think to do on some of your fringeworthy adventures. So when you see a seacoast, don't think of it as something you need to turn left at. It might be something you need to go out into because there might be a lot of things out there that you never see otherwise. So we're hoping you're going to uh, have fun with this. And if you do do some aquatic adventures, please let us know. Please uh, we'll put some posts on our uh, news groups and on our website. And our, our websites are tritaggamers.com and uh, the Yahoo group at uh, Fringeworthy at, uh, uh, at, at yahoo.com in the group section. And also you can leave comments on our website at uh, tritechsystems.podbean.com. So we hope you'll leave us lots and lots of messages. Oh, and there's some more places. John, what's that? Oh, I just mentioned we actually have a, we have a, a link roll on, 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 the, on the podcast site. So if you, you go to, the, to the, our list of links, you'll be able to find most of those places right there already. Right. And to get to our, but to get to our podcast page, you have to go to uh, tritechsystems.podbean.com. So... Uh, we look forward to seeing your comments on this and uh, hearing of, about your explorations to the wild and w- amazing places that you find on the fringe paths. Thank you.